So I've been a big Spike Lee fan since I was a teenager, and I think when you're looking at a director and you truly want to understand and appreciate their work, there's nothing more interesting than the deep cuts. So today we're going to discuss one of the more unusual and possibly overlooked of Spike Lee's joints. We're going to talk punk, disco, riots, blackouts, heat waves, and the 44 caliber killer in the summer that was the Summer of Sing. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hey, I dig this movie. I'm Keir Seward, an independent filmmaker and photographer, as well as a guy who would never bail on your gig, Austin, no matter how freaky I found the people standing outside. <laughs> and I'm Austin Hayden-Smith, philosopher, actor, writer, producer, etc., etc., etc. And that means a lot to me, man. Although, what if I started, like, sucking dick and fucking and shit like that and got, in, like, deep into sex work and shit like that? Well, I mean, are you, are you in a band? Is this a gig? Uh, on stage? Sure. Live performance. Yeah, so this is – so you've invited me to your gig. Well, you know, I can't bail at that point, can I, man? <laughs> I mean, it doesn't matter. I appreciate that. This is true friendship. That's the, that's the solemn bro code there. Somebody, like – somebody says, are you going to come to my gig? You show up, you man. Show you up, show man. up. You show up. Yeah, dude, that was one of the most infuriating things about this film. What a little snitch John Leguizamo's character is. Ugh, we'll get into it. There was something in the air. You're doing so great tonight, baby. Ah, uh, because you're beautiful. New York City, 1977. Is that Richie? Satanin' guys. You come back to the neighborhood looking like a freak. You're supposed to be okay with it. A time of endless possibilities. You want to be my dog? A naughty girl. And serial hysteria. Tell the homicide. Police received a letter from the 44 caliber killer, calling himself the son of Sam. What would happen? I just saw the body. I am the monster. Beelzebub. <laughs> In one hot summer. He's a victim six and seven. In one neighborhood. Vinny saw the dead bodies last night. Saw the bodies? Between friends and lovers. The son of Sam Killer, who has been targeting young women, has caused panic-stricken brunettes to dye their hair blonde. I feel like I'm cheating on you with you. Anyone is a target. I think he's after me. I'm going to be number eight. You know, I'd lay five to one to kill us from right here. Uh-oh. And everyone is a suspect. It's a blackout. We understand that the lights are out. Just stay in your house, lock your doors. City that never sleeps has come to a standstill. I know who the killer is. Reggie Jackson. What the matter with you? <laughs> what kind of guns did the killer use? 44 caliber, right? What's Reggie's number? 44. So it's the summer of 77, and New York is gripped in the fear of the man known as the 44 caliber killer, a.k.a. the son of Sam. Uh, the main thrust of the film revolves around an Italian-American community in the Bronx. John Leguizamo and Mir Mira Sorvino play a hairdresser, Vinny, and his wife, uh, Diana. Is it is it Diana or Diana? I could never remember. Uh, I thought it was Diana. It's Diana. Okay. Mira Sorvino. Yeah. They're so they're avid disc. I feel like we're just going to call them John Leguizamo and Mira Sorvino Probably. for the rest of the thing. But, you know, for the purpose of this, I'm trying to actually stick to the character's name. Anyway, they're avid disco dancers. And uh, Vinny has a slight case of the being a cheating scumbag. So one night he's having sex with, of all people, Deanna's cousin in his car in a residential neighborhood when they realize they're being watched. Vinny stops and yells at the man and then drives away. Only later, when he's driving by the same area, does he see the police investigation going on and realize that he's just missed getting killed by the 44 caliber killer, who, after they left, went and killed another couple in the same area. This sets up kind of an existential and religious crisis in Vinny as he ponders whether this is God telling him that he is doing the wrong thing. However, he continues to have affairs with his have an affair with his boss um, because he's only comfortable fulfilling his sexual fantasies with other women. Vinny's old friend Richie, played by Adrian Brody, returns to the neighborhood, having been away for a while, and he's now sporting a spiked punk hairdo and affecting a truly, truly terrible British accent. Richie soon finds himself unwelcome in the neighborhood due to his weird appearance and odd behavior. However, uh, Ruby, who is kind of the 
the local bicycle, shall we say. She takes a shine to his new style and vibe, and her and Richie start a relationship. She finds out Richie secretly makes his money by doing erotic dance shows and prostituting himself to gay men. She becomes enamored with the punk lifestyle, and she makes herself over, becoming the singer in a band with Richie. Uh, film cuts around a lot. Uh, it sort of tries to give us sort of a larger scope of events going on in New York in that summer. There's a big heat wave. There ends up being this big citywide blackout that results in these big riots. The Yankees are having a winning season. Uh, we see the mafia's involvement on a local level and the way that the police sort of try to interact with the mafia in order to try and get them to help them solve the con- the crimes of uh, the of the forty four caliber killer. Um, and then we also periodically keep cutting back to um, the son of Sam. Uh, as he continues his murder spree and um, watch him go crazy in his flat where he is uh, egged on by a barking dog who eventually talks to him and tells him to kill. Uh, Vinny and Diana go to see Richie's band at a legendary punk club, CBGB, but are so appalled at the sight of the punks that they don't even go in. Diana, Diana keeps pushing Vinny to communicate with her and tell her what he wants to do sexually. This eventually leads to them ending up in a sex club where they engage in an orgy. However, Vinny, feeling jealous and shamed, lashes out at Diana for being a whore. And Diana reveals that she's always known Vinny has been cheating on her. And she leaves him. Vinny's drinking and drug abuse gets even worse, causing him to lose his job um, and his boss to tell Diana that she's been having an affair with Vinny. Uh, this is the last straw, and Diana says that she is leaving Vinny for good. Um, meanwhile, Vinny's friends have decided after an incident that happened where Richie had gotten into a confrontation with some locals at a diner that it's obvious Richie is the son of Sam. Uh, Vinny takes some convincing, but after seeing CBGB and finding out Richie has been prostituting himself and starring in sex films, that he doesn't know who Richie truly is. They then go off to beat up Richie and take him to the police. What they don't know is the police have caught David Berkowitz, a.k.a. the son of Sam, already and are taking him into custody. Vinny and the gang arrive at Richie's home, and Vinny lures Richie out onto the street. There, he is accosted and beaten badly as Ruby is held back and watches Richie and watches. Richie's stepdad emerges from the house, firing a gun in the air, yelling at the attackers that the police have already caught the son of Sam, and it's all over the news. The gang leave, and unable to face Richie, uh, Vinny walks away alone um, and ashamed. And, um, there's also these kind of, uh, bookends with Jimmy Breslin, who is the real reporter who his son of Sam sent letters to. Um, and he kind of, uh, he kind of introduces and kind of, uh, then sort of bookends the film by sort of saying that these are the stories of New York. And this was one story that happened in 1977 and yeah, kind of like acts as a kind of, um, I don't know, what would you call it? You know, in theater where you have like the person who comes out and sort of like introduces everything and then sort of gives the closing statement. Yeah, just the narrator is fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, um, like in, um, in, into in the Romeo woods. and Juliet. What do you yeah, guess? Or in Into the Woods, you have, uh, yeah, the, yeah, the narrator exactly. that comes out that's like, once upon a time, and then it cuts to the action that's going on in the story. Yeah. Narrator works. So this is, of course, kind of an interesting film, too, because it represents several departures by Spike Lee. It was, um, one of his first films to really not revolve around a, uh, majority African American, um, uh, uh, cast. Um, and it's kind of, so it's kind of a, an interesting departure for him in a lot of ways. And it was a film that was clouded in a lot of controversy. The New York post really, really went after it and basically tried to say like Spike Lee was glorifying, um, the son of Sam and making money off of the victims. And, uh, that, uh, Spike Lee was a racist because he was like putting out these horrible depictions of Italian Americans and that uh, then there was, like, this whole thing to try and trump up sort of, like, rage in the Italian community because they cast John Leguizamo, who's a Hispanic, as an Italian-American. And just a whole bunch of, like, shit that just kind of, like, I think also really hurt the movie on its initial release. I thought that John Leguizamo was uh, Italian-American. No, he's, he's, he's 100% Hispanic. He's Colombian. Um, oh. Because so, he, so, he, he played, like, Luigi... And so he's played the Italian, like, New York dude but a dude, lot. But, dude, he was the narrator I, on the Brothers Garcia. Of course he's fucking, you know, he's fucking Hispanic. I just thought he was a good actor. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you thought he was pretending to be a Hispanic person, <laughs> not an Italian. I did. But Leg, um, Leguizamo sounds like an Italian name, you know, like 
Well, Johnny Leguizamo. I, I had the same thing. You know? <laughs> I had the same, but I had the same thing with Jennifer Esposito. I thought Jennifer Esposito was Hispanic all this time, and then turned out she was Italian. I thought that is so weird. I did too. To, to pull back <laughs> the curtain for a second, I really wanted to do a Spike Lee film because obviously Spike Lee, you know, after all, after being at the Oscars, you know, kind of like was all over the news, and kind of Spike Lee's had a moment again. With Black Klansman, it feels like he sort of um, regained a kind of cultural moment. Of course, in the 90s, Spike Lee was this huge name in filmmaking. So it was kind of like it felt like the perfect time to talk about Spike Lee. And as someone who loves Spike Lee, you know, I, I, you know, it was really hard for me to decide what is the film that we should talk about. And of course, you know, if you're going to talk about like Do the Right Thing or something like that, it's been talked to death. It's more interesting to look at more of a deep cut. And so I put out a message on Facebook and said, OK, what Spike Lee film should I talk about? And it was really interesting because the the one that came back the most was uh, Summer of Sam. And so I wonder if this film has some kind of kind of underground appreciation, even though I don't think it's necessarily a film that gets a lot of respect within Spike Lee's filmography. Mm. So I'm, I'm curious, Austin, what did, what did you think of this film? Yeah, it, it was tough, man. It was tough because I really, really, really came into this film wanting to love it because I had seen this film previously and I had like a positive memory attached to this film not like great like oh i love that movie but like oh yeah i really like that movie i think um and uh, as i watched it a lot of it was familiar so i actually feel like i've seen it more times than one and i don't know if it was because it was on tv or something or whatever but i i feel like i've seen it a few times actually now i've never really attributed it as a spike lee film and i know that we kind of talked about this in our whatsapp chat i kind of just thought it was a film and so I kind of watched it last night as just a film and I had to like remind myself that it was a Spike Lee film, especially when he pops up as the reporter, right? Um, and I was like, oh yeah, this is, this is a Spike Lee film. So I, I have one question that I want to ask you after I give you my general assessment. Um, but more than anything, I think the film for me has some spots and some elements that are really cool and that are really good. And then it has some elements that are not so good. And it just, that was the, my biggest takeaway from this film. Like more than maybe any other film that, that at least I can remember that we've done on this podcast, I felt that this film was really inconsistent. Now part of this, I'm not saying that it objectively is the most inconsistent film that we've covered, but I think maybe in, in reference to my expectations, it's more inconsistent than I thought. And I think part of that is because it's kind of an ensemble cast and there's kind of a few themes that are being explored. Like, it's not a film about Son of Sam, um, per se. It's a film about this neighborhood. It's a film... I love I love the bookends with the reporter where he says, New York City, a city I love and a city I hate. There's eight million stories. This is just one of them. I really, really like that. Because it's kind of like, this is just one story that took place during the summer of the son of sam like during that outbreak and i think that's really cool because i often think about that like when i'm watching a movie it's like why did the, the why is this story the one that we're focusing on in this series of events why is this the character that we're following you know and i think that there was something really nice about kind of how contingent the story is based on that and so in a way it's a love letter to New York and i, I you, you basically hear spike lee saying look man i hate new york and I love New York. And I feel like everybody says that about New York. It's the greatest city in the world. And it also fucking drives you crazy because it's loud and it's dirty. And, you know, it's, it's just uh, super crowded and the buildings are too high. And it's swampy and hot in the summer and it's freezing in the winter. But at the same time, it's the greatest city in the world. And um, so I loved that aspect of it. But I did feel that there was just almost like too much in the singular story. And, um, and I kind of wonder what you think about that because I know that that's the intention – but for some reason, it didn't it didn't always come together for me as much as I would have liked. Well, here's the thing that I always find really fascinating about Spike Lee is I always say part of my love of Spike Lee is that he's a guy who swings for the fences. And it's <laughs> okay. kind of like and he goes bold. And I would actually say that I think maybe about 50 percent of his filmography is actually good movies. And the other half is kind of interesting tries. Um, and I think I would count this in the interesting try category. And that was the Definitely. thing that was because I think I think the film has a kind of special place in my heart because I think it was a very early. I don't know if it is the first Spike Lee film that I watched, but it's definitely up there as one of the first. And so I think it kind of 
introduced me to a lot of kind of like the things that I came to really like about Spike Lee as a filmmaker. And so I think that's partially why it holds a kind of, it, it holds a kind of certain amount of importance to me. Um, and I think given my age, I think a lot of people I know probably had a fairly similar experience. And that's probably why it came up on the Facebook as, you know, the one that people were sort of willing to select. But I, I think there's a couple of there's some interesting themes mixed in with a lot of kind of like big try things. And. But actually, the thing that really struck me about it, and especially because I've obviously since... I, I don't think I've actually watched this film in about 10 years. And obviously, I've learned a lot in 10 years. You know, you learn things over time, and, you know, it changes how you perceive a film. And so one of the things... That, and I think I've, I've come to know more about Spike Lee as a filmmaker. Because basically, Son of Sam, because it was an early one, is not one I've revisited a lot in the last 10 years because I've been, watch, I've been catching up with all Spike Lee's other movies. So I was coming into this with more, per, per, more of a perspective on Spike Lee as a filmmaker. And the thing that struck me so much, especially given what we've done recently on the podcast, is that to me this is kind of his ode to Alia Kazan and Martin Scorsese. Because he's said, like, two of the most influential filmmakers on him were Kazan and Scorsese. And you can see this kind of Italian-American, kind of like this insular sort of like world that really kind of in some way Spike Lee is kind of interested in and fascinated by. Mm. And the other thing that I think this is interesting in terms of as a turning point for Spike Lee is that I think this is the beginning of one of his first jobs as a kind of more like director for hire as opposed to mm. his kind of like this is a personal story that he's written himself. Because he didn't write the original script. The original script was written by uh, Michael Imperioni, who also plays a role in, the, in it. Uh, Pirioli. I, I never know quite how to say it. And uh, Victor uh, Calaccio. Um, fucking up. Sorry to any Italian-Americans <laughs> listening. I don't know how to pronounce your names. Uh, and I know how annoying that is because my last name is Seward. But, of course, um, but the thing was, like, basically, Michael Imperioli, who's basically in almost every Spike Lee film. Which... Which one is he? Uh, he's he plays Midnight, the guy who runs the uh, the the gay club. I fucking knew he looked so familiar, man. I was I was about to I, yeah. I didn't Google him while I was watching the film, but I was like, that guy reminds me of somebody, and that must be it. He's just in a lot of films that I've seen, but I. I didn't know his name. He has a couple of people that will always show up in his films. Like you, you, Sam Jackson doesn't show up in this film, but Sam Jackson will usually show up somewhere in a Spike Lee film. And uh, also, John Turturro. If you're you're just if you're watching a Spike Lee film, you're just waiting for that moment that John Turturro is going to show up. And in this case, John Turturro shows up as the voice of the dog who tells uh, that who tells uh, David Berkowitz to go out and kill. Right. <laughs> That part, that part was a little ridiculous. <laughs> that was. But again, that is Spike Lee. Spike Lee is a theatrical guy. All, and that's the thing that I think you always have to look at is like so much of Spike Lee's films are theater. They're kind of Brechty and they're about mm. these big ideas and people standing on soapboxes and declaring things in soliloquies. They're not about kind of naturalism and the real world. And I think sometimes that style can be a bit grating. So, I mean, just, just to finish quickly what I was talking about earlier, which is that basically Spike Lee sort of said he would produce the film with Michael Imperioli uh, directing it, but basically they couldn't get any financing for it because Michael Imperioli is not, uh, you know, sort of like, he's not Spike Lee. He's not that kind of name recognition. So it got to that point where basically it was like Spike then got interested in saying, you know what, I will direct it if you want, if, if you're up for that and um, we can make it through his deal with Eric Roth and um, over at uh, over Disney at the time. I think that was it. So I think it was a project that he kind of ended up on rather than one that had come organically through him. And I think there's something kind of interesting in that, is that Spike Lee is now dealing with something that's less his perspective because so much of Spike Lee's films really revolve around he has this biting, intense perspective about race in America and black culture in America and the way it relates to how it is perceived through the media, how it's perceived to white people. You know, it's a it's you know, it's 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 a he has a strong vision. And I'm not totally sure 
Spike Lee necessarily has a strong vision in this film of what it is that he's wanting to tell. I think he's interested in the story, but I'm not really sure it's coming from a sort of strong personal stakes in the same way it has with other things he's made. Mm. Yeah, I can see that. Although he does he does try to weave in some racial stuff um, that is that is kind of interesting. You know, the derogatory terms that are just going to be kind of part and parcel of this particular neighborhood with how they speak about black people and Hispanic people. And then uh, the bit where when uh, the power goes out and then Spike Lee is reporting from the black neighborhood. And then, of course, there's talk of looting and stuff like that. Like they don't they don't go into any of the other neighborhoods that were affected by it in the same way that they go into this one neighborhood. And then, of course, when the son of Sam goes into Brooklyn, into the one predominantly black neighborhood, the interviews with some of the locals and stuff like that. So he does he does put like his, I guess, patented Spike Lee racial touch into the film. And I think that actually adds an interesting dimension to it as well, just from like a like it's an interesting conceptual theme that that kind of, I don't know, fills in some of the some of the narrative holes. I think the funny thing is that the film, in a certain sense, wants to feel like it's it's talking about like the way that New York is kind of gripped with this kind of this, this atmosphere. And I think the difficulty is that ultimately it still is very hung up with this one neighborhood in the Bronx. So it, it kind of can't decide what scope it's really trying to go for. And so I think sometimes it's struggling a bit with the scope of being an ensemble film, but also trying to be a personal story about these couple of people. Because ultimately, it's that funny thing of you kind of go like, so the main character is kind of kind of Vinny, played by John Leguizamo, and it's, and it's kind of like with maybe Richie as Adrian Brody as Richie kind of being like the co-lead. It's kind of those two guys and their dynamic and where their various issues end up taking it. And I think there's a lot of interesting themes about the idea of like this 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 clash of kind of disco and punk and this idea of people kind of like um uh sort of rebelling against the the sort of the norms of their neighborhood and how that can then factor into this this idea of this overall paranoia of this other, the idea of like the 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 killer being some some weirdo from like the the punk world or something like that. You know, I I, I think all of that's really quite interesting. I'm not sure it all weaves it into a kind of cohesive narrative. But then again, I don't really go to Spike Lee films for cohesive narratives. Because even like, as much as I say loved Black Klansman, I'd say it's a very baggy movie. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I can totally see that. I do have one question that I wanted to ask you. What is like, Mm. is there something that's particularly Spike Lee, quote unquote, about this film? Like, what what is Spike Lee about this movie? You say you love Spike well, Lee. I mean, like when you watch this film, where, where do you, besides just being bold. Are you talking about thematically or visually or kind of, like kind what? of everything? Yeah, yeah, kind of everything. Okay, well, thematically, obviously, Spike Lee is very, very concerned with um, neighborhoods. He's very abs- with, with sort of with groups of people. So if you obviously think of like the greatest Spike Lee film, at least in terms of how pe- how it resonated in the culture and how people think about it, would probably be Do the Right Thing, um, and that is of course about a block and mm. the sort of the. The, the sort of the ensemble tension that rises over the course of that. And Summer of Sam is kind of a similar thing. It's essentially about a group of people all interacting and struggling to come to terms. And if you look at, say, if you substitute, say, um, Danny Aiello, John Turturro, and the Italian pizzeria with, uh, and, uh, you know, with, say, the Italians in this one and the black people with the punk rockers, and, you know, it's... It's a kind of similar theme and story. And this is something that Spike Lee ends up touching a lot. He's very interested in kind of like neighborhoods and sort of like in, in, in groups of people. So I always joke that basically do the right, not do the right thing, uh, sorry, um, Dear White People is basically just a TV remake of um, School Days. And School Days is a similar thing. It's about the community of of um of this black university. And I think that's part of it. I think because as someone who's very interested in black issues, I think it's inevitable that he gravitates to this idea of community within his work. And mm. I think again, even if you look at say something like the 25th hour, which I think is a really which which is again, I think is actually kind of become known as his unsung masterpiece. Um, which is interesting because, again, it's kind of a, him doing a director for hire job and him making a film about white people. But um, I think, again, that's an interesting one, too, in terms of how it sort of reflects about the idea of community, the idea that uh, 
Monty, who's the Edward Norton character, has essentially had this sort of community of loyal friends that he had his life, and he sort of rejected them in order to sort of like join this other community of so the sort of criminal underworld that ultimately is the reason that he's gotten you know, he's, he's going to be going to prison and how these various communities work with each other and how they sort of, how he identifies himself as part of them, uh, end up ultimately being about where his, where his morals and where his future lies. Mm. And I think that's, again, that is kind of Spike Lee in a nutshell. Mm. It is about community ultimately. And so I think Summer of Sam really does fall into that. But, I mean, if you want to talk about visually, I mean, it has a lot of his visual tropes. It, of course, has the famous dolly shot where a, cam- where an, uh, a person will kind of float towards something. That happens in every Spike Lee Oh, with Bobby, uh, Bobby Del Fiore, Bobby Ferry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, he, he, you know, you have the sort of very bright colors. He tends to have quite highly saturated films. Mm. Um, he has – he also has a thing that I've noticed that people don't necessarily bring up a lot – but he, when he does dramatic scenes, he often kind of plays them in a room where people kind of just, it feels almost improvisational. And it's almost like he said to the actors, you have to like stay in this room for two or three minutes and you're just going to, and you're just going to, to keep each other there. And we're, the audience is going to have to sit in this conflict for a while. Huh. Um, and he has this, he, him and, him and Terrence Blanchard, who's the composer, they've worked together pretty much through his entire career. And that's the thing. Like he works with a lot of the same people. Um, he, he, they have this thing of creating these scores, which basically just sit through scenes and they don't really have like ups and downs. They more just have this mood that stays consistent throughout the entire scene. Mm. So sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. It kind of, like I said, with all of Spike Lee's films, they're kind of, it's a little bit patchy sometimes, Mm. but I think he's someone who's very, very interested in, kinetic exciting visuals and that's where i think the scorsese influence really comes in you watch how much he's really interested in the idea of how um of how story can be about more than just simply uh the idea of um, establishing shot and shot reverse shot he's very interested in in really sort of unconventional forms of coverage He's also very interested in design and the idea of how do you design a scene in an, in an unconventional way, yeah. um, which is something that feels very Scorsese in nature. One of the things that I that I noticed that he did that I really kind of liked as a technique was because this is an ensemble film, he, he has to introduce these characters as kind of one being connected, but two having their own individual uniqueness in relation to the background, which is the Son of Sam killer in this neighborhood and how it's affected this neighborhood and this community of people, right? And I think one of the things that I thought was really cool was, for example, that he did it a couple of times, but here was the most kind of obvious one to me, was it was at um, Mira Sorvino's dad's restaurant. And the camera starts on her, I believe. And then in a single take, the police officers walk in the door and the camera then shifts. It's moving as it's focused on a waiter. I think it was on Mira Sorvina's character. After it had just kind of set up a conversation with her, I think it was with her and somebody else. I don't remember. It might have been with her and Leguizamo's character, but I don't remember. It was, But it kind of had followed her, and so you're thinking, oh, okay, so she's the focal point of this shot. And then she starts to walk, and then as these cops come in, they walk past. The camera then stays on them and goes in a completely different direction and follows them as they go to the other side of the restaurant to go sit down with the kind of like mobster guys, the guys who kind of run the neighborhood. And then the focus settles on that conversation for the next six minutes or whatever it was. And the way that the transition was done in a single take was really nice. It was kind of like a nice way of of linking how it is that, you know, like you're in a restaurant and this is like the neighborhood restaurant and the stories kind of all intersect sometimes. You may not know each other, you may know of the person, but you may not be close friends, but nevertheless, your lives intersect at this restaurant because this restaurant is a sort of like node or a hub of this neighborhood. I thought that was a really cool technique and he does that a couple of times because that's a way of like bridging the inconsistencies that I sensed a little bit um, in a way that I thought was kind of really nice and smooth rather than like doing a cut and then being like, oh, and here's this other story going on on the other side of town. It was kind of a way of bringing them into a a similar shared space. And I thought that was a nice uh, technique. And he's very interested in the idea of different types of imagery and how different types of 
imagery works. So, for instance, there's a bit, too, where Ben Gazzara, who's playing uh, Luigi's kind of the, the sort of the mob boss of the neighborhood, um, and Anthony Lapaglia, who's uh, playing the detective, you know, there's this whole sort of conflict within the, yeah. the fact that the yeah, that's detective, the scene, he that's grew the scene. up as part of the neighborhood. Yeah, that's the scene I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah, yeah, yeah this yeah. is the scene we're talking okay, cool, about. Yeah. Yeah. He, grew up, he grew up in the neighborhood. And Ben Gazzara is like, you know, I, I looked after you, could have been. And I, I love the line. He goes, like, you could have been a great plumber. Because obviously he's, <laughs> he's, he's not talking about that's, being that's a plumber. technically yeah. Luigi claims to be, even though he's a mob boss, he's technically a plumber. And, right. and but it's like, it's, like a, it's like the little details, like the thing where he says, didn't I take you to, to Yankee Stadium mm. and get your ball signed by Mickey Mantle? And then we cut to what looks like sort of Super 16, Super 8 footage of, um, of, uh, of like a little kid in a New York Yankees hat. And the camera sort of pans from his smiling face looking at the camera to looking at a baseball that's been signed by Mickey Mantle. Mm. Um, or, for instance, too, when, um, when uh, the, the sort of the junkie guy is talking about how he thinks that um, that uh, us, the baseball player, um, number 44, Willie Mays. Reggie Jackson. Reggie Jackson. Okay. No, it's Reggie Jackson. Yeah. When he says Reggie Jackson is, uh, he, said, he said, said you know, I bet Reggie Jackson is the killer because what's his number? 44. And then you cut <laughs> to a shot of Reggie Jackson, you know, um, and it's like that thing of I think Spike Lee sort of blurs often this line between sort of um, uh, realism, you know, sort of uh, theatricality and documentary. Like he's, mm. he, you know, he's really interested in how like these little sort of like pieces of imagery can like add to the mood or the the idea of it so it's like so there's no the reason to sort of cut to that shot of the detective as a kid and it feels real because again it's that it's it's using a stock like super eight that we associate with kind of like home movies um Mm. and the reason is that it, it creates this more sense of authenticity we're not just simply talking about a theoretical child we're seeing the child and it's things like that those little touches that just add to this kind of interesting visual collage style that I just find really, really fascinating when I'm watching him. And again, it's the sort of thing that I can see kind of apes a little bit from Scorsese in terms of like how Scorsese sort of uh, goes about making films. And, you know, and he sort of said to him, he sort of said that when he was a kid, he went to see Mean Streets and Mean Streets had this incredible effect on him in the same way that Scorsese talks about having gone to see On the Waterfront. Um, and, you know, Spike Lee says, you know, he moved into this neighborhood in Brooklyn where they were the only black family and it was just nothing but Italians. It was near the mm. dockyards. He said he went to mean streets and he felt like these are people that I see every day. And that's that's again, I think that's where, you know, the true power, he sort of realized the power of cinema. And it's so fascinating to hear that, you know, uh, weeks after we did On the Waterfront, we're talking about Scorsese's experience. And you sort of like you see how these kind of the, these generational, these filmmakers generation by generation keep sort of like inspiring each other through the sort of similar stories. And I find that just sort of so heartwarming and, and, and fascinating and lovely. Here's, here's my question. OK, I, I, the thing I think is really interesting. One of the things that I, I've because I've, I've tried to watch several Spike Lee films with Alex and sometimes what Alex finds off putting is the acting because it's often again, like I said, uh, Spike Lee's films are a lot about kind of like people getting on soap op- uh, soap boxes and deliver, delivering soliloquies in big brash fashion. Yeah. So I think sometimes he can push his actors into very sort of big performances and i think there are some big performances in this what did you kind of think of the acting overall yeah i got a little annoyed with adrian brody a bit especially the bit when he walks in on his mom and new husband having sex i mean that scene just seemed way over the top and kind of corny leguizamo was pushing it a few times i thought mira sorvino was fantastic um she feels underused in the film she does feel underused in the scene, the breakup scene in particular, where she event the the fight with with in the car. I I actually thought it was handled really well, especially because that's a that just seems like a really interesting way to bring the collapse of their relationship to the point of break. You know, where they go to this sex club where she's been trying to please him, and uh, and then finally she does something kind of like freaky and outlandish. And then what happens? He gets what he desires, and then he turns it on her, and he calls her a fucking slut. And it's like, oh my god, are you kidding me? Like, 
I, I forgot that that part happened. And you can just see it in his eyes when he's driving home. That scene I thought was great. And then particularly the one where she ends up packing up her shit and leaving when she says, I just don't believe you anymore, baby. Well, it was interesting, too, because I was thinking about this through the prism of how we watched Elite Squad um, okay. last week. Yeah. And I was thinking about that moment where um, Wagner Mora comes back and basically tells his wife, you know, you're going to fucking listen to me and stop being a bitch, basically. <laughs> right. And she just kind of sits there and takes it. And I was kind of like, was the funny thing in this one is I was kind of like when Mira Sorvino packs up her shit and goes, I'm like, yes, fucking get out of there. And you were like, you, and I'm, I, you know, you're, you're happy in the end that the film doesn't end up with her going back to Vinny. And strangely, the film, of course, feels like it's all very much from Vinny's perspective. It doesn't really feel like it's her perspective much of the time, but it still very definitely feels like a moment of triumph for, well, at least I perceive that of when you're kind of like, yeah, fuck you, Vinny. She's not coming back. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you feel like he's going to convince her. You feel like because she kind of was a complete pushover for the whole film. She knew that he's been cheating on her. You know, all she wants to do is kind of bend the knee to his will. She's even asking an ex. Like, how humiliating. She's asking an ex. Um, and pro- oh, and that, seems, that seems pretty painful yeah, as well. Yeah, like, like uh, she's asking this ex how he likes to have sex. And the ex is even looking at him like, she's like, you want me to tell you how to fuck your husband? And it's like, yeah, like she she was so weak and impotent through everything that I just felt at the end that when she's like, I'm going to leave. And he's like, baby, if you like even the last ditch effort, if you leave, I'm going to jump out that window and kill myself. You think that she's going to be like, OK, we'll make it work. And she doesn't. I thought that was pretty fucking awesome. Yeah. Well, and it's also it's interesting then too to counter balance that because of course so you have Vinny who's representing in many ways this guy who's struggling with the sort of traditional ideals of the sort of like the Catholic Italian American thing like obviously a lot of what we're seeing going on there is the kind of Catholic guilt sort of angle of things because he keeps talking about this idea that he's that um you know he thinks like god's showing him a sign that there's something greater going on that's trying to prove that like like the son of sam killer is all about him and and that <laughs> this is this is saying you shouldn't be fucking like 69 and women and doing no like doggy all that style shit no doggy style that's <laughs> gross you know that shit um meanwhile obviously you know you've got adrian brody who's kind of embracing this very uh, you know this, this 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 much more outlandish life in a quite, and I and I think that's the interesting thing is I'm not totally sure what the film perceives of Adrian Brody in terms of his sexuality because obviously he's doing things like having sex for money, and I don't feel the film necessarily shames him for that. I don't think it looks at it as a positive thing. It just sort of pre- presents it in this very sort of matter-of-fact way. And then it's quite interesting because, of course, then you have this character, Ruby, who's, as I said, is kind of the the, the town bike, and that's kind of what everybody says about her, is uh, she'll fuck anybody. Mm-hmm. And then so, but, like, Richie likes her, and it's about kind of like how they have a, a relationship that's about more than just sex even though their world seems to be very filled with sex they seem to be able to have something deeper meanwhile the repression of john leguizamo and mira sorvina's life doesn't seem to end in anything sort of positive on on their side of things so Mm. i mean it's it's interesting in terms of how the movie is dealing with sexuality Yes, I, I do think that's probably the most interesting thing about the film for me, actually, was and, – and then obviously relating to the religious themes and stuff like that, obviously. I, 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 think, I think the whole punk scene is kind of an interesting part of it because, yeah. again, I think I just think that that whole aesthetic of the 70s New York punk scene is just kind of fascinating. So I definitely kind of very much vibed with that and I loved like the scenes where they were like recreating CBGB and stuff like that. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, and for me that all kind of relates because in a way you could say that the narrative of the punk vibe is in the rejection of all the stuff that is causing the repression in the Leguizamo character. And uh, and kind of so then what happens when you are one like running away from this oppressive transcendent being that is imposing like uh, morals and dogma onto you? Like then what do you go to? And, you know, they 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 kind of there's the bit where Leguizamo accuses Brody's character of being in a cult. Right. It's like, oh, because you don't abide by these rules, are you in a cult? Like, is there some sort of weird religious crazy shit that you're into you know and then there's that really lovely scene at the beach when 
uh, Adrian Brody says like, you know, do you feel like there are two people? There's like the people that you're born with and there's like the person that society puts onto you. And so you can see that he's warring with this notion of identity, place, um, and trying to navigate away from and through this very Catholic Brooklyn community set of ideas that he feels like he was raised in and it it just doesn't fit for him that's why he talks in that fake terrible british accent and wears the shirt and does the hair and wants to learn to play the guitar and you kind of see him find a place in the punk scene um but it's a place out of place and i think that that was really kind of interesting whereas leguizamo he ends up with no place he's the one who doesn't actually he ends up alone he ends up without anything because he's not able to deal with the guilt, the shame, and and whatnot that come from the the kind of Catholic imposition that's impo- that 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 he's kind of crushed under, you know. And I, I thought that was really lovely. Leguizamo when he's interacting with Joey T and the two doofuses, um, and you know they're kind of hanging out at that dead end area. And he doesn't seem to like them. He doesn't seem to like being there. It's not like he enjoys spending time with them. And he seems to like Richie. And that's the thing right. that's kind of interesting how, like, Richie comes back. He's excited to talk to him. They're kind of like they're they're hanging out. They're doing things. You feel like he genuinely wants to be around Richie, even though Richie's kind of obviously doing his own thing. And he kind of just ignores the whole punk thing, whereas everybody else is much more quick to be like, you look like a fucking weirdo. Hmm. Whereas, like, Leguizamo's just kind of like, just, just, just goes with it. But it's... It's interesting, too, how ultimately, again, if you're going back to this idea of community, that Leguizamo ultimately ends up siding with the community, even people mm. who he thinks are idiots and don't really like, even though, you know, it's 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 against this guy who he actually genuinely has some kind of affection and respect for. And I think, I think you know, I think that's, again, that's part of the idea with Spike Lee's is kind of the... the that the community can represent different things. It can represent this kind of suffocating, or it can represent sort of this idea of acceptance and being and 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 renewal. And I and I think mm. and I think that's part of it. Is, is Richie's kind of leaving one community, entering another. At which point he's finding this kind of like this 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 freedom and this sort of this new sense of self. Whereas um, Leguizamo kind of is is too stuck and scared to leave the one that he sort of like grows up and grew up in and knows. Mm. It's really interesting, right? Because I was because this film kind of got it got fairly trashed when it came out. Mm. And, you know, sort of looking back at it now, it's not like a film that has a lot of reappraisal. But I came across this bit in um, on the um, on the Wikipedia page for it. So I was kind of interested in in, uh, I was kind of interested in reading this to you and seeing what you thought about how what this says. According to film academic R. Barton Palmer in 2001, it continues to be widely viewed as Spike Lee's most controversial film, issuing a cynical appeal to trashy tastes, which has prevented some critics from according it more than cursory consideration. Many critics objected to its frankly unromantic, starkly realistic, if hardly pornographic in the usual sense, handling of the sexual themes, as well as for its perverse street language and what some saw as Lee's bitterly negative and even derogatory representatives of white ethnic culture. Reviewing the film in 1999, Kenneth Tran of the Los Angeles Times states... Ali is a powerful filmmaker who certainly knows how to have an impact on an audience, but those who survive his ministrations are likely to wonder if, in this case, the battle was worth its bruises. So, I mean, what? I mean, it's it's interesting then because there's some kind of appraisal of the idea that the sexuality is somewhat blunt and not necessarily thought through. I think within the critical community, and I don't know if that's something that you would agree with or not. Um not thought through or maybe I, I think that the film is very cynical and I think it's because he doesn't he doesn't spoon feed the audience with like big values like big moral values I think you're right that community might be the value that undergirds the film but other than that it's not like he's like uh he's not espousing some sort of worldview that is easily uh identifiable Right. Like that sex is beautiful or that you should be free to have sex with whoever you want. Or he's he's not like making one of those 
moral gestures with the film. And so it again, I think I did notice that at one point. I was like, oh, this is like a very and I know people use this term postmodern film, but what I mean by that is that it's detached from like the grand narratives that that like ethics often derive from, you know, the idea of the church or the idea of the nation state or the idea of the radical freedom of the individual or something like that. Like it kind of doesn't really have any of that. It kind of pre presents this interesting empirical or kind of empirical analysis of this community in a way without offering that sort of mooring to tether ourselves to. And I, th I think that maybe that's what people sense with regards to sexuality. And so it leaves them like, well, fuck, well, what are we supposed to think about sexuality? He doesn't really tell us what to think. And I think that's, I think that's part of the point is that there is, um, cause in a way he's, he's, He's challenging one moral framework, which is the Catholic guilt moral framework. Clearly, he's doing that. He's like, yo, look at how destructive um, this type of guilt can be. But then he doesn't really offer anything at the outset because he doesn't really glorify the freedom of Esposito's character. He doesn't really glorify the freedom of Adrian Brody's character. And part of the reason, I think, is context, too, that in the 1970s, if you were unattached from like the Catholic moral framework, it was very difficult to have any kind of notion of sex positivity. If you were gay, you would get made fun of in that neighborhood. You would get beat up. If you were quote unquote a slut, if you were a woman who was having um, promiscuous sex, you would be viewed as a whore. Like you didn't have the freedom to have that autonomy of your body. So I think he's kind of letting us see a picture of New York in a pretty authentic way within at least this one community. However, the one area of the criticism that I do think that I did sense as well from what you just read was I did wonder if he wasn't being unnecessarily derogatory towards Italian-Americans in New York. Like if he wasn't being a little bit reverse racist as, you know, the white supremacists like to say today. <laughs> well, I, 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 again, I, I don't believe in the concept of reverse racism. Neither do I. Because yeah, I, was, I, was, because racism I was being tongue-in-cheek. I was being tongue-in-cheek. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But I think I – think, um, well, I think it's interesting too because I think I think people were very hung up on the sex stuff when it came out because of the news reports of they apparently had to cut it back from being an NC seventeen um, because of there was uh, more there was more to the orgy scene than was originally. Oh man, than, than I want to see the NC seventeen version. And yeah, and I think there was some reports about I can't or like. Um, Mira Sorvino and John Leguizamo having said that scene was really uncomfortable to shoot or something like that. I mean, I, I can't remember. I just I don't re I just vaguely remember it being in the sort of cultural conversation okay. at the time. Yeah. Um, and it's I really more found out about the the accusations of racism um, when I was watching, uh, when I was watching an, uh, an old Charlie Rose interview with Spike Lee and Spike Lee's really defensive about it mm. in that. Um, and I think part of the difficulty is I do think some of the accusations don't come from a place of good faith. I think they come from the fact that Spike Lee is an outspoken person. So let's show him up to be a hypocrite, show mm. that he's actually a racist in all of this. And I think there's a lot of people like say the New York post who are really, really out to try and prove that Spike Lee is a, a vindictive racist hypocrite. Um, and, you know, again, I'm not totally sure if these these people were in a Martin Scorsese film, you'd be, you know, quite as inclined to say it necessarily. I'm not saying you, I'm saying the general populace. Um, I think, you know, I think it's kind of a thing of you get, you know, you, you put a black man in charge of it or even say a non-Italian and then it suddenly becomes a different kettle of fish because i mean i'm not sure these guys are any more outrageous than the guys you see in the sopranos yeah i mean the thing is is like the the dudes that hang out at the street on the on the dead end street i mean they're just dumb as fuck and the fact that they just like put together this list because they're like yeah it's, he's clearly the guy because he's a priest and he used to beat us up and he's sketchy he must be on the list put him on the list and you're kind of like jesus these people have no reasoning and so i can see why people would think that he's being like unnecessarily disparaging towards a group of people. I can see that criticism. But I think that's the interesting thing too. Like if you then look at say something like do the right thing, like again, I think a lot of this goes back to, to, to the theatrical style of Spike Lee and the fact that people are, are quite big. And I'd say like, 
you got to think sometimes of these characters as if they're like in West Side Story or something like that. They're they're selling you a big idea. <laughs> oh, I like that. And so if you go back to say something like do the right thing, you look at some of the black characters on the stoop. If it was a white director making that, people would be saying you're you're dealing in broad stereotypes. Because it's a black director from Brooklyn, people feel more, far more comfortable being like, oh, okay, that's his vision. And that feels authentic to him. Mm. And I think that's part of the problem that we get into sometimes with this dumb argument of authenticity is that we're so out to try and prove that people are malicious in terms of their viewpoints. And it comes to a certain extent, yes, from the fact that we, Hollywood media, it has a bad history of representation, and that's fair enough. But I also think that we can't lose focus sometimes of the fact that, you know, the people are complex and films are made in different styles and they're meant to reflect different things. And actually, one of my favorite things I ever listened to was on the audio, co- and it really made me realize how complicated Spike Lee was, was when he's talking about Do the Right Thing and he's talking about, like, the bit where um, uh, where Buggin' Out comes into um, and he starts complaining about how, why there's no brothers on the wall and uh, Mike and um, Danny Aiello goes like Italian Americans only when you have your own pizza play you can put whoever you want on the wall um, and he goes no we want some brothers on that wall and then obviously that's the thing that eventually gets the conflict to the point where they end up going right and Sp- Spike Lee just very matter of factly says in the audio commentary very early on he's like you know I agree with Danny Aiello you know it's like if we want people on our own we have to buy get our own pizzerias mm. and I just and he says it so casually and of course the whole idea of do the right thing and everybody always says with do the right thing what does it mean what does do the right thing mean who was right who was wrong and mm. I don't think Spike Lee ever gives you a true answer to, in that film but it's fascinating to just hear him say yeah no I think uh, I, I actually think yeah I, I think uh, Danielle is totally right it's it's you know in, in 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 terms of that one point not necessarily with everything but the point of him saying it's yeah, my place so I can put Italian Americans on the wall only if that's what I want to do mm. and I think and, and I think that's the ultimate complication with Spike Lee. I'm not sure Spike Lee is very interested in giving you a single thesis for you to get from anything. I think he's far more interested in the mucky confusion of humanity and what you can pull out of these kind of big ideas that he kind of throws at you. So, I mean, to a certain extent, I feel like this conversation is exactly what Spike Lee wants us to get out of Summer of Sam. Um, Just us discussing the themes that we perceive in it. You're such a hypocrite. When I do an art film and I say, but that's the point, Kier. You tear me to shreds. You're just, that's the pointing, Austin, right now. That's what you're doing. You fucking hypocrite. Even though I think, <laughs> even though I think you're probably right. This is probably what Spike Lee Well, wants. I mean, I mean, I guess my point might be then, at least Spike Lee wraps it in an exciting and interesting <laughs> package to watch you know if i have to watch a woman peel a fucking potato for five minutes i'm not really sure i care that much what themes i could ring out of it that's I mean, the I'm, point I'm, you know quickly because we'll wrap it up soon but i, I think there's actually a kind of interesting thing of course that we haven't really brought up which is of course sam himself or the son of sam mm-hmm. is to what extent do you think he represents something in this film? Like, is he... Because the thing is that often complained point of it is like Spike Lee talked about how with it, he wanted Berkowitz almost to be like this specter that just hangs over the film yeah. at all times. Like, he's just always there lurking in the background and he's just... There's this vague threat that exists. But a lot of people have kind of talked about how, like, the scenes actually do the opposite and they kind of seem almost a bit silly and over the top and they kind of take you out of the movie. And I was curious, what did what did you think of those scenes and to what extent do you think Berkowitz represents something as a person in the movie as opposed to just necessarily something that people are talking about? I mean, they are a little bit silly and over the top. You know, when he's screaming about the dog and burying his head into the, head into the pillows and then even the, uh, the actor's performance is very kind of like... Because like, I don't know what kind of person Berkowitz was, but they make him out to be like this silly, goofy, crazy person. You know, when he was a very bad schizophrenic. I know. Oh, was I, he? I, I know that. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. My, I mean, he's still my, alive. My, he's up in. I think he's still alive. He's he's up in. Um, yeah, because he 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 uh, he got given six consecutive life sentences. He didn't. Right. Uh, he didn't get executed or anything. It was a little over the top, but. I actually agree with Spike Lee. For me, the way that it operates on a whole was as a background specter that haunts the film. Um, I thought it was relatively effective doing that. At least, at least when we're not 
in the midst of those scenes. Maybe if those scenes weren't so long, like when he's yelling at the dog, or maybe if it weren't so frequent that we cut back to him yelling at the dog, like, we get it. He is freaking out about this imaginary dog. Um, like, okay. Maybe it was just because there was two... Well, that was, that was what Berkowitz said. Yeah. He said that he was commanded to uh, kill by a 2,000-year-old dog. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, no, no, that's and what I, that's alluding to. Obviously. Yeah, yeah. No, and that's that's fine, but maybe it's just because it was so frequent that it cuts back to him. I don't... And then, you know, like the bit where he punches that hole in the wall and he talks about how, like, my friend's living here and stuff like that. Like, it, it felt like... It, the film could have done without so much characterization of this guy. And it still would have been really interesting to create the background specter of the son of Sam and then the story that unfolds within that. Like, I think Tarantino's take on Manson uh, in his next film is going to do that, right? Yeah. I think that they— Well, I, I don't know what Tarantino— Obviously, I don't know how Tarantino's going to play it, but I I don't think Manson is a main figure within right. the film. For, for, for what the reports have told me, figure. that that's— that's how it seems. Like it's a story that takes mm. place with the Manson killings in the background. So it's a story about Hollywood when all that shit was going on, which is very much like in an elevator pitch. You could put Sun Summer of Sam and whatever uh, Tarantino's new film is called. I can't remember. Um, you could put them side by side and be like, oh, yeah, it's a story about New York with uh, during the, the killings of the Son of Sam. And then it's like, oh, it's a story about Hollywood during the killings of Charles Manson. Right. Well, I think actually the other one that you could kind of loosely throw into that category as well that I kept thinking about was Zodiac. Oh, see, I don't – of course I think – But Zodiac is – but it's all about him. Well, maybe you're right. But Zodiac – yeah, but at the same time, it's not about the Zodiac at all. It's about how the Zodiac affects other people. It's about how – Yeah. It, it, it is – it's about the obsession of the Zodiac as opposed to – it's not – you know – because we don't even know if we ever actually see the true Zodiac in the film, really. Right. You know, it's funny. I was, yeah, I, I was thinking about Zodiac a lot when I was watching this film. And it's almost in a way that there's similarities, but they're so different. Like, you, like, like if you want to, if you were to, like, sit down with some, like, young film students and be like, do you want to see how, like, a difference in taste as a, as a director or a difference in style as a director affects a similarly themed film. Watch these two films, and then you will understand the difference between Fincher and Spike Lee, just as humans Well, and Spike directors. Lee is a professor of film at NYU, so maybe he does that in his classes. <laughs> Shows them Zodiac and goes like, this is what I was trying to do. <laughs> didn't, didn't totally work. <laughs> maybe, yeah. But but here's here's like here's like the thing with this too though that I I I I do kind of think is I I kind of there's that little part of me that kind of almost wants to know what a fan cut of this film without those Son of Sam interludes would be like, and if like he purely existed as an anonymous specter over mm. the film, if that would actually improve the film, because I think at at certain points again it feels like the film is trying to bite off too much. It's trying to be about too much, and it because it wants to be about. New York in the su in the, at, during this summer period, but ultimately really is just about the, this very small conflict within this small community, mm. and so it doesn't totally ever. And I think that's it. I think the war the film is kind of at war with itself at times. So I wonder if there's a kind of like more streamlined version of this film that could exist. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you could. Yeah, that, you could do that, and it. I wonder how that would affect the film, the viewing experience of the film. Hmm. This was our first. I mean, literally, it's funny because I was watching this and I was just going through. I was getting, I was getting primed back into my whole Spike Lee thing, and I was just like, God, I would, I would just happily watch every Spike Lee movie mm. with you and just like go through every one one by one, mm. you know. But, uh, but we're not going to do that. No, not, not um, at least not in order. Maybe, maybe over the course of ten years. <laughs> Ten years, we'll eventually get through them all. We'll, we'll, we'll eventually be stuck doing the Kobe Bryant one where he just watches Kobe Bryant play basketball for an entire game oh, and doesn't take the camera off him. That's ridiculous. I have no desire to watch that. <laughs> Richie's the son of Sam. They think he's the son of Sam, the 44 caliber killer. Eddie, stop it! Nobody gets in my neighborhood without me knowing it. You think I'm the son of Sam? Everybody's got two personalities, man. A Spike Lee joint. Son of Sam, come and get me! John Leguizamo, Adrian Brody, Mira 
Sorbino, Jennifer Esposito, and Ben Gazzara. That psycho is gonna have no place to hide. In 1977, the summer belonged to Sam. Cool. So I don't know if you heard about it, but every once in a while you see this report and you're going to be excited about this. And I don't know if I'm like, this is a throwaway pick, but I really do think this will be fun to uh, to actually talk about because we've mentioned it a few times on the podcast. And I know you love this film, like, or at least it, it's one of, it's a film that you have watched many, 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 many times in your life. Um, but did you see recently the report that scientists say that they believe they can recreate living dinosaurs within the next five years. Here. <laughs> did you see this? I, so this I, was a report. I, I did see that pop up on Facebook. And then did you see uh, uh, Jeff Goldblum's response to it, which was perfect? No, what was it? He just quote tweeted it and said, you know, your scientists were so concerned whether or not they could do it that they didn't stop to think, think whether, whether they, they should. should. <laughs> and that was his quote tweet. So I said, you know what? I want to watch fucking Jurassic Park. So we're going to watch fucking Jurassic Park. Let's watch Jurassic Park. This is... <laughs> I know I know. this is like the most watched film of your life, right? This is the film... Like, my mother will tell you that there was a certain point in my life where I pretty much watched Jurassic Park every day. I was obsessed <laughs> with Jurassic Park. I've read I've read the book. I've read the sequel uh -huh. to the book. You know, I I the levels to which I was obsessed with Jurassic Park are insane. I know. So in a way I feel bad because I feel like I'm taking a film that is oh, clearly no, no, no. your pick, but I in a way I'm lobbing it. I'm lobbing you this pick. Um but I really want to watch this film. When was the last time you saw Jurassic Park? I mean, it wasn't that long ago, actually. I think I rewatched it maybe a year ago. I feel like it was recent-ish. Um, okay. But it was. it is a film that I can watch and remember all the lines pretty much verbatim. Okay, cool. So uh, join us next week for Jurassic Park. In the meantime, you can follow us on um, at I Dig This Movie on Twitter. You can go to idigthismovie.com to get our back catalog. You can check out my work at Breaking Point Flicks um, on Instagram or at kierseward.com. Um, I am heading off to Glasgow tomorrow to go see Wretch at uh, the Glasgow Short Film Festival, which is entirely pointless me telling you this now because uh, by the time this episode airs, uh, it will have already happened. So, um, yeah, I guess I'm just doing it to brag. So hopefully you were there and uh, you got to say hello. Yeah. If you didn't yeah. come up and say hello, then fuck you. Yeah, bastards. Um, uh, you can follow me on Twitter if you want, Austin underscore Hayden, or Instagram, AUS underscore H-A-Y. That's pretty much it. Okay, and uh, yeah. Ooh, Jurassic Park. <laughs> <laughs>